first reading is from Proverbs 3, 1 to 18. That can be found on page 450 of your Bibles. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. Let love and faithfulness leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favour and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honour the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son delights in. Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies, nothing you can desire compares with her. Long life is in her right hand and her left hand are riches and honour. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who embrace her. Those who lay hold of her will be blessed. Good evening, everyone. Tonight's New Testament reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, on page 683 in your pew Bible. Um, So we'll be starting at chapter 4, verse 23, going through to chapter 5, verse 12. So it's the first reading in our series on the Sermon in the Mount. So if you'd like to follow that with me now. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralysed, and he healed them. Large crowds gathered from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Dave. 
Great to be with you. There's a few new faces. If you haven't met, my name is Paul. Uh, you've joined us at the first week of a new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, which has been described as the most famous sermon that's ever been preached. I've never preached it before, so I'm looking forward to spending the next uh, seven or eight weeks working way through this, this most famous sermon of Jesus. Let me just warn you, uh, this sermon series does come with a warning. Uh, fasten your seatbelts. You're in for a, a, a ride, which will be a roller coaster ride. I do pray that you would be greatly refreshed, uh, but also rebuked. Uh, that you'd be really comforted in your faith, uh, but also really challenged in your faith. And that you'd be encouraged to just to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, but also allow the Word of God to just grab hold of you and change you where you need to be changed. So I'm going to pray that God would do that tonight. Father, we've just sung those words that our hearts are prone to wander. And so I thank you, Lord, for church. Thank you for this gathering that we can meet each week to spur one another on. Father, when our hearts do wander, I pray you keep us coming back to the scriptures, finding our refreshment in them. Lord, we need your help tonight to have hearts which are soft and have ears that listen. And so, Lord, I do pray for a powerful work of your spirit through your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know whether you've had what, what, I, what I call those spiritual wake-up calls. So imagine this scenario. You've been working for a company for, let's say, four years. Let's say you work, or let's be generous, nine hours a day, five days a week for four years. And you've got a colleague who you work closely with, Maybe you sat at the desk next to them, or you're a doctor with them, or, but they know you. You work together. You, you've been out for lunch together. You've been for drinks together. They, they've seen you. They've seen the way that you think. They've seen the decisions that you make. They've seen your priorities in life. They've seen the way that you relate to other staff members. They know you. And then you're having lunch one day after four years of working together, and you talk about church. And then comes the spiritual wake-up call. Then they say to you, oh, are you a Christian? I, I never knew that. I do, what? I mean, but we've worked alongside each other. And, and I, I've shared my life with you. And you've seen the way I relate to people and what I think about and what I do. And you didn't know I was a Christian. And, and, and part of you thinks, oh, actually, that's quite cool. Hey, hey, I, I, I can be a Christian. I can be normal. I can be a Christian and not be different. I, I can follow Jesus and everyone will think that I'm just like the rest of them. That's okay, you know. Now, what would Jesus say to you? If you're playing that kind of, I could be a Christian, I can be cool, I can be trendy, I can fit in with the crowd, I can be normal, I don't have to be different. I reckon Jesus would say something like this. He'd say, Friend, if you call yourself my disciple, 
if you truly love me, if you understand what I, I did for you at Calvary, what it cost me to die for you, if you really are my follower, you would be different. And you'd be radically different. Because you don't belong to the world anymore. You belong to me. And you're not living for this world anymore. You're living for heaven. You're not called to fit in with the crowd. You're called to be different and stand out from the crowd. Because you're my disciple. And really, my friends, that is my main point for tonight. If you remember nothing else, if you take home nothing else from this sermon, just go home with these two words. Radically different. Radically different. Different in your character, different in your decisions, different in your ambitions, different in your relationships, different in your attitudes, different in your commitments. Just different. So I reckon the church has completely lost its way. The church is desperate to fit in. And the church is desperate to attract people. And the church is desperate to be seen as normal. And it's not even the case that we keep one foot in the world and one foot in the church anymore and do this kind of spiritual splits. Actually, no, the church is so much part of the world and we just give that occasional nod to Jesus. And that's why this sermon called the Sermon on the Mount is so confrontational. The Christian author C.S. Lewis was once criticized for not caring about the Sermon on the Mount. He said these words. As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, who, likes, who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? Because that's what this Sermon on the Mount does. It's refreshingly blunt and refreshingly real and refreshingly countercultural. And Jesus is saying, if you've been saved by grace, if Jesus has grabbed hold of you and you are his, then you'll be different. Radically different. This is the best known sermon in the world, but I want to say it's the least applied sermon in the world. Because uh, if every church, and if every Christian, and if you personally took Jesus' sermon seriously, then we will be radically different. And I don't mean cultish, and I don't mean weirdos, and I don't mean religious fanatics. But so different in what we think and what we do, and the decisions we make, and the ambitions that we have, that the world will just look at us and say, yep, there's a disciple of Jesus. So where are we up to? Jesus has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. He's been tempted in the desert by Satan. Now look at chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee. He's teaching in the synagogues. He's preaching the good news about the kingdom of God. He's healing every disease and sickness. And as he's teaching, as he's preaching, as he's healing, what happens? Uh, verse 25, large crowds from Galilee and the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, they're all following him. Uh, kind of his, his fame is spreading, the crowds are flocking. So what does Jesus do? Verse 1, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside. It's kind of reminiscent of Moses, who withdraws, goes up the mountain to be with his God. And so his disciples came to him in verse 1, and he began to teach them. He sits down, the, the position of authority as a teacher, and he opens his mouth and he teaches them. 
It's not just the disciples. At the end of the sermon, 7 verse 28, uh, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. So somewhere between the beginning and the end of the sermon, a bit like sort of church by the bridge, people come sort of halfway through, uh, the crowds come and they enjoy the rest of the sermon. But Jesus is teaching them. Now what does he want them to know? If you could sit and have an audience with your saviour, what would he say to you? He begins with the most beautiful, profound, simple words. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed, blessed, blessed. And he wants to say to you and I, that we can be blessed. We can be blessed. Before we look at them, let me just say a couple of things. The things we're about to talk about, the characteristics of, of the true disciple of Jesus, you know, meek and merciful and hungering for righteousness and pure in heart, they're not sort of exceptional qualities of the super-Christian. They're not... Uh, what the, you know, the, the absolute highest quality Christian should strive for. Uh, Jesus expects every Christian to exhibit these kind of qualities. Let me just say that these qualities as well, you know, being meek and being merciful and uh, being pure in heart and being peacemakers, they're just not natural. They don't come naturally. I'm not naturally meek or naturally a peacemaker. These are supernatural things, but they are a mark or the evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. They're not eight steps to becoming a Christian. Please don't read it like that. It's eight marks of being a Christian, of belonging to Jesus. But let me ask you, what do you think he means by that word blessed? Blessed. Some people translate it as happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the meek. Happy are the peacemakers. The problem with that is that happiness is, is very subjective, isn't it? It's about how you feel. But to be blessed by God is not about how you feel. It's not subjective. To be blessed is actually objective. To be blessed is how God sees you, not how you feel about yourself. See, it's very possible to be uh, totally unhappy, but totally blessed by God. So what does the word blessed mean? It means something like to have found favor with God. To be approved by God. And let me say that there's no greater blessing than to be approved by the God who made you and loved you. If I want to be approved by anybody in this whole universe, it's my God that I want to look at me and say, yep, he's found my favor. And that's why this sermon is so radically different, because if I said to you, who are the blessed people in the, in the world, who are the blessed people that you know, you'd probably say, oh, you know, the, the world would say, oh, the rich people are blessed, and the healthy people are blessed, and the successful people are blessed, and the intelligent people are blessed, and the, the carefree people and the popular people, they're the ones who are blessed. And sadly, in some churches, that's what, that's what it means to be blessed. 
You're blessed if you're successful. You're blessed if you're popular. You're blessed if you're healthy. Now, what does Jesus say? They're radically different. He says, first of all, blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 3. Those who have found favor in the eyes of God are those who are poor in spirit. He's not talking about material poverty. He's not saying if you have no money, if you're financially destitute, then you're blessed. He's not saying those who lack the Holy Spirit, if you've got less of the Holy Spirit, you're somehow blessed. What he is saying is you have found favor with God if you acknowledge your spiritual poverty and your spiritual bankruptcy. The person that God loves and that God blesses is the person who, who regularly and readily wakes up and says, God, I, I deserve nothing from you. I can do nothing for you. I don't deserve your forgiveness. I can't earn your forgiveness. I've got nothing to give you, God. Do you remember the parable in, um, that Jesus told where two men walked into a temple to pray? One was called a Pharisee. He thought highly of himself. They strutted into God's place, God's house. Hey God, here I am. Look at me, look at me. Looked around to make sure everyone saw how, how spiritual and how wonderful he was. And there's another man in that parable who stands at the back of church and he recognizes before God he's a nobody. And he stands with his, his head bowed and he beats his breath and he says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Now that is what it means to be blessed, to be poor in spirit. It's the person, the man or the woman whose signature song is, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. Have you got it? The person who is blessed, who is approved by God, he says, I've got nothing, I deserve nothing, I can do nothing, I'm totally, utterly dependent on you, God. Now here it is. I reckon that most of us, if we're honest, we started out our Christian life like that. When we first heard what Jesus had done for us, we first heard the sacrifice that it cost him to die for us to forgive us. We were like those helpless children just clinging on to Jesus. But you know, as we've just lived a bit and we've matured in our faith and we've got more Bible knowledge and uh, we know the songs more and we do more and we serve more, we've become these, these proud, pompous, uh, self-assured people. Have you got it? You cannot be blessed by God unless you are somebody who is spiritually bankrupt and said, who am I God that you should save me? Remember King David? Who am I God that you should send me? Remember Gideon? No, 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 God, I'm, I'm the lowest tribe, not me. Now that is radically different, isn't it? Because the world says, uh, grow in your self-confidence, believe in self, promote yourself, rely on yourself, be a somebody. And in some churches they would say that. Yeah. Rely on yourself, promote yourself, be self-reliant, applaud the people. But Jesus says the, the people who belong to the kingdom of heaven are not the rich, not the mighty, not the religious, but people on their knees, empty hands, repentant hearts, poor in spirit. 
Who else is blessed? Blessed are the mourn, those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And again, the world thinks this one is ridiculous because the world wants to laugh and have fun and have a good time and just forget your troubles, be happy. And mourning is kind of embarrassing and it's awkward and you don't know what to say to people. Uh, Jesus is not saying, blessed are those who are grieving the loss of a loved one. He's not saying blessed are those who mourn the death of a spouse or a loved one. That would be totally and utterly insensitive. So what does he mean, blessed are those who mourn? He's not saying be a morose, miserable, self-pitying, weeping Christian. It's linked to the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. Who literally, who mourn their sin. Who, who grieve over their wrongdoings. They've got nothing to offer God, yet God has saved them. And despite the fact that he saved them, they still go about sinning and they mourn about that and they grieve over that and they're sorry about that. Do you remember the Apostle Paul in uh, Romans chapter 7? That has those famous words. He says, uh, the things I don't want to do, I keep on doing and the things that I do want to do, I don't do. And then he cries out in Romans chapter 7, what a wretched man I am. What a wretched man I am. It's an attitude, you know. Please don't tell me that I'm good. I hate it when people say, oh, you're a good person. I want to say to them, if only you knew me. If you'd see me when I'm jealous and when I'm envying somebody, and if you'd see me when I'm uh, lacking integrity or I'm struggling with pride or, or with lust, and if you'd see me on my knees before God just weeping over that sin, you know I wasn't good. That's what it means to be blessed when you mourn your sin. And again, I reckon we've lost that in most churches. The 1662 prayer book has a wonderful prayer of confession. It says this, we acknowledge and bewail or mourn our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed. And yet today we put a confession up on the screen and we do a quick nod the head and say, oh, I'm sorry, God, I'm not quite sure what I'm sorry for, but I should be sorry for something. Here's an extract from a missionary, a missionary journey, a journal. Uh, it was 200 years ago. It says this. In my morning devotions, my soul was exceedingly melted and I bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and my vileness. I bitterly mourned over my exceeding sinfulness and my vileness. And I can't remember the last time I did that. Just knelt before my God and just wept over my sin. Because we swallowed this lie that basically we're good and somehow we deserve God's favor and we deserve God's forgiveness. I met with a wedding couple. They wanted to have Amazing Grace at their wedding. A Christian couple. It's a beautiful hymn. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And they said to me, oh, we want the hymn, but we want to change the second line because we don't like the second line. They wanted to change it to Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a soul like me. And I said to them, but, but we are wretches. You're a wretch and I'm a wretch. We deserve nothing from God. And the hymn, Jesus, lover of my soul, uh, just and holy is thy name. I am all unrighteousness. 
vile and full of sin am I, but you are full of truth and grace. It's an extraordinary hymn. We we don't sing those kind of hymns anymore. All our songs are about how wonderful we are, how we'll run into God's arms and we'll do wonderful things for him. After I preached on God's glory a few weeks ago, someone came up to me and said, I didn't like that sermon. I think I am wonderful and I think I am the most important person because Adrian Plath tells me. And I said, actually, uh, well, the Bible says that you're not wonderful, but Jesus is wonderful. Disciples of Jesus, those who are blessed, mourn our own sin. We spend time on our knees just weeping over the ways that we reject God and rebel against God. But not just our own sin, we mourn the sins of the world. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law isn't obeyed. He looks at the world, sees God's law being disobeyed, and he is weeping at the sins of the world. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, uh, I've often told you before, and now I say again with tears, I weep at the fact that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I was preaching it on 2 Peter 2 in morning church two weeks ago. And there's this passage where, where Lot is living in Sodom and Gomorrah, the most immoral, degraded city. He chooses to live there, but as he lives there, how does he live? Sorrowful, weeping, and mourning at the sins of the world. It's Jesus weeping over the sin of Jerusalem. I don't think we do that, do we? We're not even shocked anymore. In our workplace every day, you see lack of integrity or you see injustice. You see cruelty, you see selfishness, you see violence, you see greed, you see inequality, you see sexual immorality, and you don't even bat an eyelid anymore. Someone said this, the greatest security against sin is still being shocked by it. The greatest security against sin is still being shocked by it. And I think we've lost our shock value. It's because we've got a defective doctrine of sin. You will never understand grace, you will never understand forgiveness, you'll never understand Jesus unless you've understood sin. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn their sin for they will be comforted. And he's not just talking about heaven. He's not just talking about the place where there's no sin and no suffering and no crying. He's talking about comfort now. He's saying those who mourn their sin now will be comforted. How does that work? Romans 7, Paul cries out, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me? And then he says, Thanks be to God, who's given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a man who's recognized how wretched he is and because of that he's turned his eyes to Jesus and his heart is now comforted and his heart is now healed and he's rejoicing in Jesus. That's what it means to be comforted. To be comforted that yes, you're a sinner but God forgives you in Jesus. To be comforted that you can do nothing because Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. So all to him you owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's the greatest comfort in the world. Sins forgiven because of Jesus. Let's move more quickly. Blessed are those who are meek, verse 5. What do you think meek means? Would you like to be called meek? Are you thinking, you know, the bit weak, 
bit sort of insipid. The, the meek person who's a bit like a, a shy, timid dormouse. Indecisive. That's not meekness. The meek person has got such a right view of themselves, they're a sinner saved by grace. They've got such a right view of other people that they're also sinners saved by grace. And to be meek means that you are kind, considerate, and humble. To be meek means you don't think you're better than anybody else. And you don't live thinking, how can they serve me? But you live thinking, how can I serve them? Abraham was meek. Uh, he let Lot take the first choice even though he was superior. Moses in Numbers chapter 12 was described as the most meek man in the whole of the earth. He, he could have been Prince of Egypt, but he, he gave all that up because he recognized he was there to serve God and to serve others, not to serve himself. And do you remember the words of Jesus in, in Matthew 11? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and meek in heart. Jesus was meek. It's not a, a weakness. It's a beautiful attribute where you consider others better than yourself. That's humility. Have you seen the adverts for that new TV show? I haven't watched it. Uh, Undercover Boss. Seen the adverts? It's basically when a, a CEO of a company goes undercover. You know, the CEO of Domino's Pizzas becomes a pizza delivery boy, and the CEO of Woolworths becomes a, a checkout chick. And it's kind of this like, whoa, shock horror that somebody so powerful and so famous would do something so stoopingly low as be a checkout chick or a pizza delivery guy. But do you know, to be meek, it means that there's no CEOs in church and there's no checkout chicks or pizza delivery guys because we're all one in Christ. That's what the gospel does. It's the total leveler. You're no better and you're no worse than anybody else in this building because we're all saved by grace. And to be meek means that you don't think what will serve me and how can I make myself look good. To be meek means how can I serve other people? How can I serve my God? I'll tell you who the meek people are. They're the people who mop the floors, who, who, who serve the suppers, who write the name tags, who vacuum the floor. No praise for me. No look at me, look at me, look at me. But I just want to serve my God and serve the people. The meek people are the people who listen and learn from others rather than thinking that they know it all already. And the meek people are the people who don't throw their weight around. Their ego isn't so big they always need to be pat on the back or recognized. And Jesus says they'll be blessed. They'll find favor with God for they will inherit the earth. And that starts now. It's quoting from Psalm 37. I'm in Christ. I'm a co-heir with Christ. I have everything I need in Jesus and I'm a co-heir with him for all eternity. Next one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Look at that word, hunger. When you read the word hunger and thirst, please don't think 
your rumbling tummy at 11 a.m. Now you've had breakfast at 6.30 or 7 and lunch is at 12.30 and you've got a bit of these, you know, the, the rumbling tummy about 11 o'clock and I'll just grab a bit of an apple or a, a muesli bar and come a bit hungry. The word hungry, you talk to someone who's really hungry. They haven't eaten for days or weeks. It's not that their tummy is rumbling, it's just that they can't function unless they get that food. And they are desperate, they will do whatever it takes just to get a scrap of food. That's the hungry person. And Jesus is kind of challenging his disciples, what do you hunger after? What are you desperately in need of? What could you not survive without? And I hope your answer isn't happiness. And I hope your answer isn't a relationship or being popular, or some great spiritual experience. Because Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They hunger and thirst to be made more and more and more and more like their God. To be right in every area of their life. Right with their lips, with their loves, with their attitudes, with their actions. The person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness basically prays the prayer, Please God, Make me just as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. <laughs> Please, God, make me just as holy as a pardoned sinner can be. Please, God, help me to be free from this sin because I hate it and I know you do too. Lord, please transform me utterly. Please just show me Jesus and make me more like him. Now, why are they blessed? Verse 6 because they'll be filled. Sure, they'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, but it's more than that. It's being filled with Jesus. It's being satisfied with Jesus, being content with Jesus. Because the more you're like Jesus, the more you're like your God, the more you're satisfied and filled and content with him. Because your hunger and your thirst has been satisfied, has been met in Christ. And again, I just wonder whether some of us here have either jaded appetites because we've just given up on the scriptures and we've given up on prayer and we've given up on meeting with God's people. Or we just stupidly satisfied that hunger with the things of the world, with your career, with your popularity, your academic success, your wealth. If you want to find favor with God and be blessed, hunger to be more like Jesus. Number five, blessed are the merciful, for they will find mercy or be shown mercy. Uh, please be careful how you read this one. Look at it carefully. He's not saying, if I am merciful to other people, then God will be merciful to me. And uh, The way that I have forgiveness with God is to forgive other people. That's, that's conditional salvation. That's a works-based faith. So what does it mean to be merciful? Again, you've got to understand who you are before God. If I've come to God with, with a poor in spirit, with nothing to offer God, that I, I say, I say, God, you have been so merciful to me. I deserve nothing, but you've given me so much. Thank you for your mercy, God. And when you recognize how merciful other people have been to you, you know, my wife, my, my son, my friends, my family, my colleagues, show me mercy every day. And when you've got that, then you start to show mercy to other people. I see others in need, even when they've wronged me. I show them compassion and kindness and grace. To be merciful is really kindness in action. That's what it is. It's acting on your compassion or acting on your kindness. Remember the power of the 
Good Samaritan. Man is lying there, bleeding and dying. Two religious people walk past. They both saw him. I'm guessing they felt sorry for him. I guess they were also a bit of sort of torn at the heart. But they walked past and did nothing. That's not showing mercy or being merciful. The merciful person sees, feels, feels the pity and acts on it and puts it into action. And they're blessed because they will be shown mercy from other people and also more and more of God's mercy. Let's press on. Blessed are the pure in heart. Remember when you read this, the heart is, it's not just this, it's not just your emotions, it's your mind, it's your wills and your emotions. I hope, you, I hope you've got that, that the Christian life is not just about thinking the right thing, it's not just about doctrine. The Christian life is actually about your, your mind and your will and your heart. It's your whole being. And I hope you know that Jesus says out of your heart comes all kind of evil thoughts and uh, unclean actions. And we've got a heart problem. We need a heart transplant. And that's why David prayed, creating me a clean heart, O God. But I hope you also know, listen carefully, that in Jesus you have got a clean heart. God has given you a new heart. He's replaced your, your heart of stone. I've got a heart that longs to hear God's word and longs to obey God's word. So what is this pure heart that he's talking about? Blessed are the pure in heart. It, it literally means something like the undivided heart. Yeah, the heart that is so sold out for God. So I don't love God and love money. I love God. I don't love God uh, and love the relationship. I love God. My my heart is solely set apart for him. We've got to teach ourselves to get rid of a heart of filth, to stop walking in the gutters of life, stop filling our minds with rubbish and the filth of the world and start to fill our minds with what is lovely and right and pure and good. So how do you know if you've got a clean heart, a pure heart? It's basically when you switch into neutral at 10 o'clock at night, when you slump on the couch, when no one else is there, what you think about, what's your attitude towards people, what you do. And more than that, actually, it's, it's the true you. We can all put on a mask walk to church, play the part, act the Christian, and no one knows what's happening up here or in here. But those who are pure in heart, what you see is what you get. They live, they live for Jesus 24-7 in this building, outside this building. And they're blessed. For they will see God. Again, not just see him in the future, face to face. We'll see him now. We'll see how good he is, uh, how beautiful he is, his grace in so many different ways. We're almost there. Blessed are the peacemakers. Again, it's not blessed are the peaceful or those who yearn for peace. We all long for peace. Uh, Who are the peacemakers? Let me say it's not just gospel peacemakers, although that's part of it. Jesus is a prince of peace. He shed his blood to bring us peace. And our deepest need is the peace of God. 
So blessed are those people who, who bring the good news of the gospel, they bring the message of peace. But it's more than that. Blessed are the peacemakers. If you've been gripped by grace, if you've understood who Jesus is, then you will not retaliate, that you will not hold grudges, that you will not seek revenge, that you will not harbor hatred and jealousy in your heart, but you will actively seek to make peace. You'll even utter the words, sorry, I was wrong. You'll meet with somebody who's hurt you deeply and you'll look them in the eye and you'll say, you're my sister and you're my brother. Let's work hard at this. Let's be reconciled. Let's make peace. Again, in the old prayer book, Great Prayer, 1662, the minister would say, the peace of the Lord be always with you. And the people would say, and also with you. And then they'd say, let's offer each other a sign of peace. And they'd wander around the church and they'd shake hands. Because it's very hard to come and take bread and wine together. It's very hard to, to say we are one in Christ. When in your heart you hate somebody who's sitting in front of you. But to put your hand out and shake their hand and say, peace be with you. I forgive you. We're reconciled. Because we're in Christ. They're the people that find favor with God who actively seek out reconciliation and peace. And let me say from personal experience that will be costly, it'll be painful. But that's okay, isn't it? Because Jesus brought us peace in a very costly and painful way. It's not about your rights. It's about seeking peace for the sake of unity in Christ. And he says you're blessed because you'll be called sons of God. Or it's not children of God, it's sons of God. It's that relational, you will be like your heavenly father who is the one who brings peace. Lastly, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. We're not persecuted because we are arrogant or objectionable or difficult. We're persecuted because of our righteousness, because we are so different, because we're determined to live for Jesus. What would that look like? Verse 11, we'll be insulted, persecuted maybe physically, uh, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Jesus. And then what's that going to happen? In, in your workplace where you are radically different, uh, in your family life where you are radically different, what are you going to do when people mock you and laugh at you and insult you? Sulk like a child? Woe is me. What does Jesus say? He says, rejoice and be glad. Because others were persecuted in that way and actually great is your reward in heaven. I hope you see how, how, how radically, radically different these Beatitudes are. Who do you think are blessed people in this church? What do you strive for to be blessed by God? Please don't tell me rich, successful, popular, healthy. That's what the world thinks. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit and they mourn and they're meek and they're peacemakers and they're humble. And let me say really, really bluntly, if you want to be normal, If you want to be normal and like the rest of the world, 
totally ignore what I've said for the last 40 minutes. But if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you can't be normal. And you can't fit in. You're called to be different. But you'll be blessed. I want to find favor and approval for my God, not through riches, not through popularity, not through success, but because I'm meek and mourn and I'm poor in spirit and I'm merciful. So who are the blessed ones? Here's the picture I get. Maybe close your eyes. It's the, the man or woman on their knees before God Empty hands, pleading with God, saying, I deserve nothing, God. I need your grace. I need your mercy. It's the man or woman who regularly, readily just weeps over their sin. What a wretched man I am. It's the man or the woman who strives for, who (coughs) hungers just to know Jesus better. Lord, feed me. Feed me richly. Refresh me. It's the the man or the woman who is so humble and so considerate and so kind towards others, not looking for praise, but seeking to serve their God and serve others. It's the man or the woman who, yes, Lord, Lord, I forgive this person. Help me to be reconciled to them. I need this reconciliation. Please bring me peace. And it's the man or woman who is pure in heart, totally sold out for God. Lord, show me Jesus. I want to be like him. I'm going to give you a moment by yourselves to think about what it means to be blessed. Maybe think about your sins because we're about to say a confession. We're going to say a confession from the old prayer book where we mourn our manifold sins and wickedness. The Bible tells us that Christ died once for all the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And while we were still sinners, he died for us. So after we've said this confession, we'll go straight into a, a time of communion, the bread and the wine we pass to you. If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, take the bread, take the wine, a symbol of his body that was broken, his blood that was shed for you. Hold on to it. We're going to eat and we're going to drink together. And as the bread and the wine is passed around, just remain seated and we're going to sing Jesus paid it all as the bread and the wine is passed around. So join with me in these words of confession. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things and judge of all men, we acknowledge and mourn our many sins and wickedness which we from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word and deed against your divine majesty, 
provoking most justly your wrath and indignation against us. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous to us. The burden of them is intolerable. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. For your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past and grant that we may continue to serve and please you to the honor and glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Friends, Jesus did pay it all. So we're going to sing about that as the, the bread and the wine come to that.